Hello, and welcome to New World Coming, produced by the People's Forum. Hello, welcome to the fifth episode of New World Coming, a political education interview series produced by the People's Forum. In this installment, James Early interviews Mary Louise Patterson, doctor and activist. Mary Lewis is also the daughter of Lewis Thompson and William Patterson, two leading militants who were part of the Communist Party USA. They discuss her experience growing up during the McCarthy period and how the persecution of her parents affected her understanding of the world. She also reflects on the history of the Communist Party USA, which at its height was more than a political party. The Communist Party was full of noteworthy discipline organizers, many of which we celebrate today. But it also had influence in the mainstream literature, theater, and music, elements of culture at that time, particularly Black culture. Mary Louise also talks about the importance of political education, not just through reading or in a class, but embedded in the social relations of our communities and in the way we treat our loved ones. How do we model collectivity in our daily lives? How do we practice discussion and disagreement? Finally, she reflects on her time at the Patrice Lumumba Friendship University in the Soviet Union and her work as a doctor with IFCO, Pastors for Peace, sending American medical students to the Latin American School of Medicine in Cuba. To study the topics of this interview and see previous episodes, Check out our political education website at politicaleducation.peoplesforum.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please enjoy this interview. Welcome to the People's Forum New World Coming series of political education interviews. What comes to mind when we use the term political education is often large macro issues of ideology and politics, capitalism and socialism, resistance and transformation which tends to obscure the fact that real live individuals are the engines for social change. Today, we want to take a look into the interior lives of a generation of black American communists who took on the system of capitalism and racism here in the United States. And we are very honored and pleased to have with us Dr. Mary Louise Patterson, the daughter of renowned African-American communist, Louise Thompson Patterson, a very close friend of Langston Hughes who organized the Soviet Union Friendship Society in Harlem and took the responsibility at the request of the Communist Party in 1932 to organize a trip with Langston Hughes and many extraordinarily talented uh, artists and writers to go to the Soviet Union uh, to do a film on race relations in the United States the daughter of William Patterson, renowned communist lawyer, who with Paul Robeson went to the United Nations in 1951 with the We Charge Genocide Declaration about racism in the United States. Their daughter who is with us today, Dr. Mary Louise Patterson, retired pediatrician, born in Chicago, reared in Brooklyn, received her medical degree from the Patrice Lumumba Friendship University in Moscow of the then Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, and later a master's degree in public health 
from the University of California, Berkeley, where her mother had attended and received an economics degree in the 20s as one of the first African-American women uh, to attend that university. Her renowned parents described variously as revolutionary royalty, a black left power couple. And today, we are with their daughter to talk about the interior lives of progressives and communists and what reflections and lessons might be passed on from the trying times of struggle of her parents and her life to this new generation of extraordinary young adult activists who are confronting the issues of racism and capitalism and looking forward in the construction of plural socialist societies. Welcome, Dr. Mary Louise Patterson. Thank you for being with us today. Um, first of all, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you, um, uh, James Early, um, activist, intellectual, um, you know, devoted uh, your entire life to the struggle for the emancipation of all oppressed peoples, especially African-American and people of African descent. Um, and I want to thank the People's Forum for um, putting this um, program on and for inviting me to be one of the uh, speakers. You know, generally when people talk about, uh, use the term political education, uh, the implication is about the large systemic uh, ideological and political struggles for power over the quality of people's lives, um, capitalism, uh, socialism, um, Marxist methodolo methodological tools for trying to analyze a problem. Uh, but ultimately, it is individuals in uh, organizations or individuals themselves or in parties or in governance who are really the engines um, that come together to make change. And while they look at this big macro term called political education, it boils down to personal lives, um, which political education all too often doesn't really take advantage of. You are the daughter of very um, extraordinary parents, um, uh, Mary Louise, uh, Mary Thompson uh, Patterson and your um, father who was both renowned communist, uh, organizers, extraordinary organizers. Tell us about your, a little about your life growing up as a very young person and um, how you found your identity, your individual way in that, that context, particularly balancing the, the kinds of ideological and political attacks. Um, and just as an individual, how did that emerge for you? Well, that's a mouthful of a question. And my father, uh, William Lorenzo Patterson, um, who was born in, depending on who you read, and if he were still here, if you asked him, was born in either 1894 or 1896 or 1891. Um, and my mother, Louise Thompson, alone, Patterson, were both, as you said, really extraordinary human beings. They, first of all, created, um, and I may be waxing romantic here, but they created a really loving environment, um, and they instilled in me from the very beginning that I was wanted and I was loved, that I was cherished, that I was special to them. My father was um, one of the original feminists. 
uh, using that term in a positive sense. But he always reminded me that he was conscious of the fact that my mother worked all day long. And my mother, for a lot of their lives, was the main breadwinner. Uh, my father's life was, and I'll get to that, was in the, in the struggle. So my mother was the one who kind of held down the house financially and the jobs that she had. Um, certainly by the time that I came along, um, that, was, that was really the case. But she was also very political and, oh, and very, organizing. Oh, very, very political and, and always very political. Uh, much more so, much more active in her politics outside of the house prior to my birth, right? Um, but she, she maintained her activity, you know, all the way to um, the Angela Davis, the Free Angela Davis Committee. And then later when young people would come like they come to you and kind of sit around, uh, you know, uh, her, her uh, chair and the pearls of, you know, experiential wisdom would kind of fall down from her lips, you know, onto them, so to speak. She was always, always active and always um, encouraging activity, you know, involvement. My mother being the only breadwinner and black women, you know, making what, five cents to the dollar of everybody else at the time, you know, we weren't a family that had money but they were certainly rich in their experiences, their life experiences, um, their outlook, um, and um, they belonged, they were members of a worldwide progressive movement that uh, supported, um, you know, supported people who were fighting in capitalist countries, the socialist world uh, led by the Soviet Union. You know, you, um, would often invite people to come and stay in the rest homes. Um, and so they had those kind of opportunities, even though they had no money. Did you feel the pressures of scrutiny, condemnation, um, threats, invasion of private life as a youngster against your parents? Yes. Um, so we lived in Harlem when we moved from, I was born in Chicago. And um, at the time, my father was uh, the head of what was called the Abraham Lincoln School. And um, this was a workers school in Chicago. Um, and my mother was working for the IWO, the International Workers Order, as an organizer. Ultimately, she became uh, a vice president of the organization. Anyway, they moved back to New York from Chicago and we lived in Harlem. And we lived in a building, 409 Edgecombe Avenue, which is important to say because it was a building where a lot of the black uh, intelligentsia lived. We lived in that building. And um, one day I was home alone um, and the doorbell rang and I opened the door and it was two white men who, um, the door had a chain on it and I was always instructed to keep the chain on, right? So I opened the door and they tried to come in, but the chain was on the door. And so they um, said they were from, as I recall, from the FBI. And I was, they wanted to talk to me. And um, 
I, you know, I must have been frightened. I don't remember being frightened. I just remember trying to slam the door, and, and one of them had put his foot in the door, and then, um, but he finally removed it, and I slammed the door. So this was in the 1950s during the, the McCarthy period. Um, you may know my father was jailed um, twice during that period. So I knew that my parents were surveilled. I knew they were um, hounded. I knew they could be imprisoned because they were all, all of the above. Well, you know, I, I raised this very interestingly. So 30 years later, um, I and the New Communist Movement, um, a minor person, not even a figure, um, the FBI coming to our apartment in Washington, I'm a graduate student at Howard University, and my mother happened to be visiting from North Carolina and talked to one of the FBI agents out of his name. Uh, but years later, I reflected of um, how focused I was on these big macro issues organizing around the independence of Puerto Rico, coming up here to New York City, hanging out with Fran Beal, Third World Women's mm -hmm. Alliance, and people mm -hmm. like that but not thinking about my interior life. Um, what should I have been saying to my spouse now of 50 years and 53 years friendship? Uh, our, we had one small child at that time, but I recognized some years later that I was out working with people, trying to organize all kinds of things, but not really focusing on my family unit. Um, and I, I wonder what you might say extracting from those early years, although you had a really distinctive family and community of very formed ideological and political activists. What might you share with them about uh, what they should be thinking, this group of 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, even 40-year-olds today, who are as energetic, as committed as your parents were, as you have been, as I have been, uh, but may not be looking at the interior life. They're looking at these bigger issues. Well, the interior life is crucial, in my opinion, James, to um, how you are able to leave the house every day and engage in the outside world. You know, what animus, what, what um, energy, what um, perspective, uh, what feeling, what mood do you leave the home with that morning? Um, it's extraordinarily important, and I don't think we give it enough importance, not just in the movement, in, in our lives in general, um, in this capitalist environment that we live in, um, which is all about work and creating profit um, and trying to eke out a life um, as best as you possibly can. My father once said, and I remember this, he would not fight with my mother at home, um, that his fight was outside of the home and that his home was his asylum. Mm. Um, I never heard, and this sounds, it's gonna sound a little incredible, but I never heard my parents argue. I never heard them uh, use disrespectful labels towards each other. I never heard them do do any of that. Um, I just grew up in, the, and I'm sure that they had disagreements, but they, first of all, didn't in any way expose me to those. Here you were growing up. Uh, your parents have been variously 
affirmatively described as revolutionary uh, royalty, left-wing power couple, uh, your mother and father, this 40-year relationship with Langston Hughes and uh, Paul Robeson and your father going to the UN, we charge genocide to really frame on a global level the issues of racism against African-Americans and particularly here in the United States. How did you move towards your own personal life, love, marriage, uh, pursuing a profession? Well, um, I mean, one grows up, right? Um, and you grow up in this kind of household and then their friends, they, they both came from, well, my father came from a rather large family, but a family that politically rejected him. So, and also they were on the West Coast and we lived in New York. So, um, and my mother came from a small family. I mean, her immediate family was a small family and she was an only child. So, my parents made family with their comrades. Uh, when I would spend the nights at their homes because um, their children were my best friends growing up, uh, their home environment was very similar to mine. I mean, I never saw arguing. I never saw disrespect. I always saw this kind of loving relationships. Um, my parents being, uh, I guess a little, my father probably a little more formal, um, wasn't as demonstratively uh, romantic and loving as, say, as, as, um, as Jim Jackson was towards his wife, Esther. But my parents would, you know, hug and kiss every morning w before they left the house, and then every evening when they came home, and they'd kiss three times. <laughs> and I always thought that it was one kiss from my father, one kiss from my mother, and one kiss from me. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, but that's how I saw it. Um, you know, I, uh, it was just, it just seemed, I think, by osmosis, um, James, I got taken to demonstrations from the time I guess I could walk. But Labor Day demonstrations, May Day demonstrations, you know, other demonstrations, it was just a part of, it was just an organic part of my life. And, and this was an era in which the Communist Party, I would venture to say, was more than a ideological political party. It was um, a kind of embryonic society yeah. uh, with summer camps, uh, the little red schoolhouse mm -hmm. here in um, New York City, um, an array of fellow travelers who were well-known singers and dancers and poets. And in reflection on that, given today's environment in which we don't have strong parties analogous uh, to the very impactful role that the Communist Party uh, had at that time in broader social life, particularly in the South around the Scottsboro Boys or organizing workers in Birmingham and other places, what might you say to this generation that they might consider of not just doing the intense disciplined work that they do, uh, but building uh, a family structure, building a, a collegial community. Uh, what might, what are some of the reflections well, you might have? that was just so important um, that the Communist Party, although very small, as you know, in numbers, um, at one time had a much larger influence, you know, over the labor movement and over the cultural movement. Yes. Um, especially in the, in the black community, um, the Harlem Renaissance, um, period and beyond. 
so that um, those communities were able to create those kind of safe havens, the summer camps. I went to one of those summer camps, Higley Hill, um, that was owned by Grace and Manny Granage, um, where we were nourished, where Pete Seeger would come and sing. I learned all the folk songs. Um, uh, Whim Away, you know, was a song that Pete, you know, took from, I don't know if he knew it was from South Africa at the time, um, but that's where also, that's where the sense of being a part of a larger um, community. So although we were small and kind of, you know, this island surrounded by shark-infested waters, um, this island of people, um, we, there were safe havens. I think it's important that young people realize um, the importance of family as not only um, the basic social unit, but that's where you, you know, you restore yourself. That's where you go every night, you emerge from every morning, and the, the importance of that being a positive space um, for yourself, for the children, um, and also it has to be a space where you are teaching your children in the ways that you live. So children, because they don't have language, how do they negotiate the environment? They watch, they observe. So that's how, you know, so we, we're observing our parents and how they're behaving towards one another. Um, if the person who cooks is not the person who's also cleaning up and washing dishes, it's the other party. Um, who makes the bed? Who does, who does the cleaning up? Who does the vacuuming? Who does the shopping? Um, and how does that happen? What do you do um, in the evenings around the, kitchen, around the dinner or kitchen table, wherever you're eating your meals? The importance of eating together, the importance of including your children in that discussion. So building the new world really in right your there, interior life, right. not just out in the, right. the major demonstrations or the major campaigns. You have um, to try to, to create that life that you're wanting uh, for everyone. Um, so my parents, I was included in their discussions. I mean, they'd always ask me, how was school today? It's so important that um, because the struggle is so difficult uh, and because cynicism, defeatism, uh, negativity is such a, a tremendous um, emotional part of the environment that we live in, it's a negative environment, that we create a space where there's positivity, you know, where a flower is blooming. And we're a community. And we're, yes. Not just this is my political, ideological comrade, but this is the community that I'm developing with. It was one of the issues I surveyed the People's Forum, the extraordinary uh, young activists who lead this institution, who have organized this institution that interface not only here in New York City, but with movements literally uh, throughout the Americans and on the continent of Africa as well. The cynicism was one of the issues that they were interested in tr getting your views on because it's, it's the system of capitalism, and particularly at this moment in which the world is changing um, and we've got all these laws that are coming up that criminalizes 
uh, activism um, that uh, people are under threat on recent revelation, not a revelation to you or me, that the CIA uh, is investigating and pursuing clandestinely the lives of people here. Mm -hmm. Fear then, along with cynicism, is one of the issues I'd like to ask you. If that was an issue of the the threat, perhaps not directly, literally, but perhaps literally, uh, to your parents, to your comradely community, how did you think about that, or did you think about that? That's a wonderful question. First, I would say my mother, my mother would say, um, I'm not fearful because I'm not doing anything wrong. The importance of creating not only a loving space, but a sense of a safe space. Um, my parents did within our home, but within that larger family. Um, you know, making sure that we, the children, uh, were friends. Mm -hmm. And we'd spend nights over at each other's homes. Um, if there was a meeting that all the parents were go to, going to, one of the parents stayed home and all the kids went to that house, right? Um, and if they had to spend the night, then we spent the night, which was always a great treat for us because you could, I mean, there may not have been enough beds, but you slept on the floor, you slept on the couch, and that was always, the, I think they were very conscious of trying to create a space where we felt safe. Now, I'm talking about African-American communists. I think for white communists and their children, it was a different story for a lot of them, but for African-American communists, where the larger African-American community that we lived in, and we lived in the African-American community, um, may not have embraced communism, socialism, or any of the isms, um, the attitude towards the system, towards the man, was, a, was one that we all agreed, kind of agreed with. And so there was protection there for us, a natural kind of protection for us that didn't exist for children uh, whose parents were white communists. And a lot of them lived in very hostile communities. Um, I mean, their immediate community was a hostile community. And my immediate community was not a hostile community. I didn't have teachers denouncing me in the classroom until high school, actually. Um, but by then, I was old enough to, you know, to be able to fend for myself, um, at least stand up for myself in, in class. Um, when my social studies teacher, this was in a, what they call an, an advanced, you know, college prep social studies class. And my teacher called me Little Stalin and another, um, another student whose parents were also communists. Uh, ben Wengrofsky called him Little Lenin, and uh, I went home and I told, <laughs> I told my parents what had happened in school, and um, I think my father went up to school, and I, you know, I, I don't know what he said, but uh, and of course I was still in that class, and I got a good grade in the class, but he went up and talked to the teacher. You know what importance uh, should the young activists today um, give to their personal relationships. 
um, you know, they're growing up, and so did we, but to a lesser, much lesser degree, in an environment of new and improved, old um, throwaway. Um, don't bother to fix it. It costs too much to fix it. Uh, you can't find the spare parts. Just buy a new, a new edition. Um, and that goes for not only your TV set and your washing machine and your car, it goes for relationships as well. It permeates every aspect um, of our lives, these poisoned waters that just seep into every place. And the pressure that the system will bring on you, I'm, I'm mindful, although um, I come up in a, a less mature ideological, political, organizational structure than you came through. One of the things that I had to develop are little axioms um, for myself, and one of them is my only um, defense is transparency. Um, I've been red baited um, in the professional space in which I've worked, and um, I would respond to people, but you've heard me say that. Uh, so don't bring a whisper. And I, I, I think it's very important for young people to find a way to communicate with the larger circles around them. There's so much sectarianism in the generation that I came from. Mm -hmm. um, what mm -hmm. perspective on Marxism do you have versus mine? <laughs> and of course, these were all textbook, abstract kinds of debates. One of the things that strikes me about the, the era of your parents and your growing up in the Communist Party is the notion of fellow travelers. Uh, these were people, one, I would say objectively, racism forced them to consider uh, what their mutual interest was because the Communist Party was perhaps the fiercest of organizations in taking on American racism. Yes. Uh, being able to intersect leadership of the NAACP who knew that they were communist. Martin Luther King is a classic example mm -hmm. with Jack mm -hmm. O'Dell mm -hmm. uh, who said, you know, Jack O'Dell is the kindest Negro using the term of the period that I've ever met. It wasn't that King said, I'm going to adopt the whole cloth of his ideology, but I recognized the genuineness of his complementary role with us in the freedom struggle of, of black Americans. So I, I think trying to find those fellow travelers is one of the lessons after my 75 years, I've come around to thinking, I wish I had learned that earlier because there were so many sectarian debates that were not on the ground with ordinary working people, but were these abstractions. And I, I wonder, uh, how, what do you think of that framework of, of how the party was a really community of people, not just a political organization, and being able to build that relationship as your mother and father did with yes. Langston Hughes and, yes. and other writers of the, of the, of the yeah. time, uh, and intellectuals of the right. time. Um, I think they saw the, um, not only the necessity, I mean, it wasn't a calculated, I don't think it was a calculated thing. Um, they were really humanists. And uh, they were intellectually fierce. Their curiosity was, you know, um, boundless. And, you know, the, I, I know they believed in all hands on deck. And that divide and rule just played out so well for our enemy. Um, and if they could get us to fight amongst ourselves, then, you know, they could just sit back and, and, wa and watch the fray, right? Um, so, and I, I think also, I mean, and of course I'm projecting, but I think 
that my, both my parents, um, they loved people, James. They just, there was just this inclination to just widen the social circle. Um, so they did. And, and my dad was forever trying to, um, then this is where political education comes in, talk to young people, especially my boyfriends. And I would just cringe because the boyfriend or, or, or perhaps a prospective boyfriend, you know, one I wanted to be my boyfriend. And my father would sit him down and he'd say, now, young man, young, now young man, um, what do you know about your history? And of course, what is your history? Is it my personal history or my parents' history? Or what are you asking me? And of course, my father would be asking about African-American history. Um, and that's where I learned African-American history was at home. They had an incredible library, very much, you know, books on the wall, just like here. And um, they never told me what to read, but it just kind of happened. James, you know, I would just pull a book off a shelf and start reading. So my father would say, you know, well, so what do you know, young man? And then um, he would s say something about a particular Nat Turner or, um, you know, Harriet Tubman or, or someone else, um, you know, Dred Scott. Um, and, um, and of course, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there gritting my teeth. Um, but I think I probably was proud that my dad, you know, was, was doing that and was able to do that. Um, and at the same time, worried about how the young man would take it, you know, and whether I just lost this boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of this younger generation and what, how they might carry themselves to, against this behemoth that we are fighting, uh, that does invade our lives. Um, the FBI, I have a CIA file, a FBI file, very small uh, as a graduate student. But I then began to realize the, the threat that my wife was under, who was not an activist, who was named as Mrs. James Early, mm -hmm. ethnicity unknown. Uh, <laughs> But the implications being she could be blindsided. Uh, the other implication was, have I shared enough with her about what I'm doing? She's, you know, in a very traditional way, very supportive of everything, all the risk I've ever taken. But I was remiss in talking about that and building a, a larger uh, common construct amongst, not necessarily for her to join my organization, but my being responsible for the life that I was pulling her into, in some ways out of my own ignorance and certainly unknown, un, 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 unknown to her. Which raises another question about McCarthyism. Did you, what, what was your experience and what might you say to this generation? You know, I, I, going back to my parents and the Burnhams and the Jacksons and the Strongs and the other, um, and the white communist families that I knew, seemed to me that, um, you know, thinking about the, um, the environment that we're growing up in or that, that we live in um, and the cult of the individual, that these people um, didn't see themselves as individuals. They were members of a collective. And the strength in that unity um, so that you could try not to be so fearful.
and you could you could try to create spaces where there was no fear or very little fear and also spaces where I and I have to say this um, where there was um, joy um, where there was a lot of laughter food and uh, and and music and poetry um, those spaces were there all the time James I mean they they um, when Langston would come over I I wanted to stay up, you know, because I wanted to hear. Because when Langston would come over, there was there was definitely going to be a lot of laughter, <laughs> and I didn't want to miss it. Um, and when um, not so much Paul, but, but Paul's pianist, uh, Larry Brown, mm-hmm. um, who was his last pianist, um, would come over, he would always bring lamb chops. Now. That was that was like a delicacy for me, and so there were lamb chops. It was food. There was always, and my mother, especially when my father cooked too, we would watch a Julia Childs. My dad and I, you know, a little wine in the in the food, a little wine for the cook, um, to create to make sure that there was joy and happiness, that the movement wasn't just grind, it wasn't just onerous you know, work, that there was joy in this movement. Listen, I I really want to thank you for sharing those sort of interior dimensions of our human lives in the context of these larger ideological and political profiles and organizations that uh, we inhabit. Uh, There is so much to be found online about your extraordinary parents. But let's step back with, uh, perhaps in closing, with two or three uh, topics I'd like to raise with you. One is um, you have your medical degree uh, from the Patrice Lumumba Friendship University in Moscow of what was then the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Mm -hmm. What led you into medicine and what led you to, to Moscow? I know your mother... I guess it was 1932. She's the founder of the Friends of the Soviet Union in Harlem, New York. And um, she uh, was asked by the Communist Party to organize a film delegation uh, with Langston Hughes and a number of other extraordinary artists to go to the Soviet Union to do a film on race relations in the United States, which was never completed. Uh, But she and Langston traveled, uh, among others, all over over the Soviet Union at that time. But what led you to the Patrice Lumumba uh, Friendship University to study medicine? Um, how much time do we have? Oh, a short <laughs> amount. <laughs> um, it was the summer of 1960. My father had gotten his passport back. So had Paul Robeson and Du Bois and others whose passports had been taken in the early 50s. And um, taken by the U.S. government, U.S. you know, Democratic government took their passports and you know, didn't allow them to travel abroad. Um, but he got his passport back, and he was sent by the Communist Party to the Soviet Union. Um, I didn't know at the time, and I'm not sure, I don't know what my mother knew. Um, unfortunately, you know, they're gone, and I, there's so many questions that I have. I right. wish I could, you know, be in conversation with them, um, but I didn't know. But my father had went actually to China. Um, which was off limits for Americans at the time. Um, And your passport said it was not valid for China, North Korea, et cetera, et cetera. There were a number of countries that we were not allowed to to travel 
to using the U.S. passport. Anyway, it was the summer of 1960. Um, this is a period where there is um, tremendous upheaval in the colonized world, in Africa, Asia, Latin America. There are struggles going on against colonialism for, for liberation. Um, for instance, the Algerian struggle um, and South African struggle. Um, and uh, my father went to Moscow. He did first go to Moscow. So I'm graduating from high school. And the next thing I know is that we're going to join up with my father in the Soviet Union. And so we travel to Paris and we stay in Paris. We um, are hosted by um, Ollie Harrington and uh, his story certainly needs to be told. Um, but Ollie Harrington, and then we travel on um, to the Soviet Union. Margaret Burnham was with us at the time, but she, um, she couldn't travel beyond Czechoslovakia with us because we were on our way to China. That's when I found out when we got to Czechoslovakia that we were on our way to China, that my father wasn't in the Soviet <laughs> Union, that he was in China. Um, and we get to China and there is the Sino-Soviet split. Um, I loved China. Um, I, I, it was um, almost like a nirvana to me at the time where we stayed, what they showed us. Um, we traveled down to Shanghai, we went up to Darien. We, um, China was just amazing, it was amazing. And I decided I wanted to stay there and study. And they offered me the opportunity to do that. My father, meanwhile, had left to go back to the Soviet Union because of the, sp the split was impending. We didn't know that, or I didn't know that. And um, my mother stayed with me because um, China being off limits, um, she wanted to make sure, first of all, that I settled in okay. Um, you know, how were they gonna be able to stay in contact with me, et cetera. So we, my mother and I are there in China and then the split is, becomes public and the U.S. Communist Party sides with the Soviet Union. So we're on a plane going back to Moscow. And we get to Moscow, my father's there. <clears throat> so was Harry Belafonte, incidentally. And uh, this is the summer of 1960. And um, maybe Harry wasn't there. That was another time that Harry was there. Um, so anyway, um, Khrushchev had been in Indonesia and he had made this announcement that he was going to, or the Soviet Union was going to open up this international school called People's Friendship University in Moscow and invite uh, students from prior colonialized countries, currently colonized countries, um, to come and study. And um, my father in Moscow, um, of course, he had left me to study in China, right? So now I'm back in the Soviet <laughs> Union. So he argues that African Americans are a colonized people. And he won five slots for African Americans to study at this now new People's Friendship University. I happened to be there, so that's how I got into the school. You talk about travel, and I know that you are connected um, with the IFCO, the, the, the IFCO um, Medical uh, Committee, 
uh, with uh, ELAM, the Latin American School of Medicine in Los Banos, just outside of, of, of Havana, and that you're recently back from Cuba, and I suspect that you go periodically. Uh, put Cuba in some perspective for us today, particularly with its outreach to young African-Americans and young Latinos to study in the medical school uh, in, in Cuba today. Uh, well, back 21 years ago, um, after the hurricane um, in Latin America devastated um, Central American countries after a hurricane, that is, um, Fidel announced that they would open up a school um, to um, a school of medicine to educate for free uh, students from Latin America who would then go back and serve their countries. He observed, and it was you know widely publicized, that after these devastating hurricanes, this particular one, um, that there was no medical help in these countries for um, the people who lived there, for the common people. There was just no help whatsoever. And if um, WHO, you know, didn't go in, if UNESCO didn't go in, um, there was no help to be had. You, you can't do anything, really, if you don't have your health, you know. So health being crucial, um, being essential, um, being primal, um, he created this, this medical school. Fidel also really had a, a tremendous interest in science and medicine. Yes. And he, had he not been a, a lawyer, I think he probably would have been a doctor and made a very good one at that. So this medical school was created um, initially, Latin American students. Um, Fidel uh, recognizes the solidarity, you know, Cuba's under uh, assault from the United States, the embargo, um, the blockade, that um, it's really a blockade, both a political and economic blockade that's uh, the longest blockade in the world of, a, of another country, um, has been imposed on Cuba by the United States. And um, Lucius Walker, who is a, a liberation theologist, um, activist uh, here in the United States, um, decides that he's going to be in solidarity with Cuba and start to, um, and one of the ways was to defy that blockade um, by taking essential goods, medicines, foods, uh, medical equipment um, to Cuba in spite of the blockade. Well, Fidel recognizes this, you know, this courage, this commitment, and um, tells Lucius that there is space for as many African-American um, students who could study, who wanted to study medicine, to come to Cuba to this Latin American medical school. That was 20 years ago. And over these 20 years, we have been sending anywhere from 10, at times 15, at times eight students to study medicine for free um, in Cuba, um, students who are primarily African-American and Latinx, but also working-class white students um, to study medicine. It's, um, it's uh, a medical uh, education like none other 
Cuba is committed to um, not only producing excellent medical doctors, but doctors who have a perspective on medicine such that um, they see its essential role in the social welfare of people. So it's not just an isolated, I'm going to take care of your pneumonia, or I'm going to diagnose and give you antibiotics for your pneumonia, but it's how health and well-being fits in with, do you have a place to live? Is it a decent place to live? Do you have running water? Do you have heat? You know, um, is the floor paved? Um, do you have electricity? Um, those kinds of things. Framing um, medicine within the larger context of people's lives. Um, and that that's what you learn when you go to Cuba. You are a, um, a doctor not only of a particular individual, but of a community, really of a country, of a society. Dr. Mary Louise Patterson, I, I can't um, tell you what, how extraordinary this has been in sharing with you these perspectives of your growing up, the interiority of your life in the context of uh, bold ideological, political, organizational expressions, um, fighting against uh, a racialized capitalism, but from the vantage point of the uplift of the whole of humanity and carrying on the legacy of uh, your extraordinary parents, uh, to which we say to our listening audience, look at our political education listing uh, on YouTube and you will be able to find more about your parents um, thank you very much. We look forward to the next time. I want to thank you very much. Um, I think uh, incorporating these stories of struggle, of um, you know, valiant fighters uh, whose shoulders we stand on, it's important to keep those stories alive. Um, you know, it's we need to learn ab about them. Uh, the way, unfortunately, we learn about George Washington and Abe Lincoln. Those are our historical heroes and heroines, and we need to keep their names current. So thank you for inviting me and allowing me to participate in that. You're welcome. Thank you for watching this exchange between Mary Louise Patterson and James Early. In this interview, Mary Louise teaches us that building a new world is both the political struggle and also requires our devotion, friendship, love between comrades, and community. In the retelling of her life and the lessons from her parents, she helps us to understand the many different and complex ways of being for someone who has dedicated their whole life to working people's struggle. She reminds us that not only are our interior lives important for nurturing and restoring us every night so that we can continue the struggle the next day, but also, these are the places where we embody the revolutionary principles that we are fighting for. In reflecting on her parents' work in the CPUSA, she shares stories about music, food, culture, spirit, relationships, what it means to open your home to comrades and people facing persecution, what it means to take care of one another's children and family, and much, much more. Like Mary Louise said, the communist organizers of her parents' time saw themselves as part of a collective and found strength in their unity when confronting fear and isolation. To see more cultural and educational content, do make sure to subscribe to the People's Forum here on YouTube, and don't forget to visit our political education resource website for further study. Thank you and see you next time. Where you gonna be standing when it comes?